The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 11 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC11. This is Secret Church 11, episode 5. Two more facets here, the gospel and singleness. Something I don't think we've addressed very well in the church. You look in Christian bookstores, you'll find tons of books on marriage and parenting. And there's very little on singleness. And the content is really interesting. Because few of the marriage books argue that marriage is a good thing. That's pretty much accepted. Instead, they talk about all the problems in marriage and how to deal with those problems. So Christian books on marriage tell you how to deal with problems in marriage. On the other hand, books on singleness take a different approach. They almost imply that singleness is a problem. They tell a single how to make the most of the time until the right person finally comes along. In other words, they say the solution to the problem of singleness is marriage. And then you can go buy the books and deal with all the problems in marriage. So there's got to be a better answer than this. Now I'm going to warn you, we're about to read some verses in the New Testament that are going to go against the grain, just like just about everything else tonight, from Paul, who's going to say, recommend that we stay single. And Paul, if he were here today, would be marginalized to say the least. Single church leader, obviously something is wrong with him. What's his looks? Is he just not that smart? Social standards too high? What's his sexual orientation anyway? There's got to be something wrong for him not to have found a wife. And this kind of thinking is a problem. We need to understand not what the world says about singleness, but what the word says about singleness. So let's, let's dive in. And married adults, do not tune me out. We desperately need to recover how to best encourage, support, and serve alongside our brothers and sisters in the church. This topic is for all of us. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is just a, a side note on 1 Corinthians 7, the, the passages we're about to read. This is, this is Paul addressing specific situations in the church at Corinth. And so he's not just sitting down to say, all right, I'm going to write a theology of marriage and singleness. And so he's addressing specific things. We don't know all the specific things he's addressing. But just remember that this is a, this is a letter written in the context to a people where you had struggles going on. And this is what he wrote. As a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that I were self, all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Only, so skipping now, we're skipping a little uh, sections in between. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he was free when called as a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Okay, split this up, this time in a gospel foundation, so basis for understanding singleness and then gospel celebration. I want to give you four reasons to delight in singleness based on scripture and the gospel in particular. Foundation, four bases. First, 
and, and probably the simplest but most important. Both singleness and marriage are good. Obviously, we've seen that marriage is good. When you look at 1 Corinthians 7.1, you'll see that Paul begins this discussion with talking about the goodness of single singleness. Now, that seems like a simple statement, particularly for many of us in a culture here where approximately half of adults today are not married. But that's not the culture of the first century. It's not the culture of pagan Corinth. And it really wasn't even the culture of the Bible. I want you to think about the progress of redemptive history real quick with me here. You look at Genesis chapter 1, which we've already seen. And the first command given to man was be fruitful and, and multiply the earth and subdue it. So how do we do that? Genesis 2, 24, we become one flesh. You marry, you have babies, you multiply in the earth. And so when you get to Genesis chapter 12, God promises Abraham covenant promise. And the promise revolves around babies. You're going to have children. And the same thing is repeated over and over again to his sons, Isaac and Jacob. Genesis 26, Genesis 28. And you notice when you read through Genesis, some of the tense moments are when there's barrenness, when children aren't coming. This is where tension comes in. Because, Genesis 48, 16, your name was virtually cut off from the earth if you didn't have kids. Deuteronomy 25, 6, your name blotted out from Israel if you don't have a child. As a result, you don't want to be single. Singleness was basically a curse. You think about those who were single in the Old Testament? Eunuchs. Who would most often have their physical, sexual physical capacity taken away from them. Widows. And often those widows would remarry soon. Singles included those with diseases like leprosy who were un- unapproachable. Those who were divorced, which was obviously not looked upon favorably. If you were a young man or a woman, you were married as a young teenager as soon as possible. You didn't want to be single. It was undesirable. Because the blessing of God was evident in marriage and children. But then you get to Isaiah 53. And you see this prophecy prophecy of Christ. And it says, who shall speak of his descendants? He shall see his offspring. Did you catch that? Jesus, a single man, cut off from the earth, Isaiah 53 says. But he has offspring. Who are his offspring? Those whose sin he bore. And the picture we have prophesied here in the Old Testament is the Son of God multiplying the people of God, not by physical procreation, but by spiritual regeneration. In other words, through Christ, the kingdom would, would go from... Not, not, not going to multiply by having babies. The kingdom is going to multiply by new birth. People being born again. And you're not part of the people of God because you're born into a certain people. You're part of the people of God because you're born again. And this would change everything. You look at it, very next chapter, Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1, says, Sing, O barren woman. Why burst in the song? Because the Lord is your maker. The Lord God is your maker, is your husband, and he's giving you new life, life through his spirit. And then in chapter 56, it talks about eunuchs. Don't worry, you're not a dry tree. Your name will not be cut off. Why? Because the kingdom of God is not dependent on physical offspring. The kingdom expands to spiritual offspring. And your name will be better, he says, than sons and daughters. So that when you get to Matthew chapter 19 in the New Testament, Jesus says it's good to be a eunuch for the kingdom. In other words, it's good not to be married. This is huge. Then we get to 1 Corinthians 7 and Paul's talking positively about singleness. And we realize the gospel changed everything here. In the Old Testament, people of God, they were multiplying almost exclusively through marriage and children. But now the picture in the New Testament is the people of God that are born not of natural birth, but through the spirit of the living God. Whether or not you're married or single, the new birth can be a reality. So the New Testament, like we've already seen, radically affects marriage, but it also 
radically affects singleness. So here's the picture when you take the whole of Scripture. You see, biblically, marriage is expected. And by expected, I mean it's the norm. It's definitely the norm in the Old Testament. And from all we can tell in the New Testament, it's 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 continued norm. It's a good thing. Even Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, 14, he encourages younger women to marry, which we'll see later. Marriage is designed by God as a good thing. We've seen that. And biblically, singleness is exceptional. And I use that word in two ways. First, to communicate that singleness is not the norm. Right before Jesus talks about singleness, he talks about marriage. Then listen to John Stott, one of my favorite theologians and writers, a man who gave his life around the world for the advancement of the gospel and recently passed away in his 70s, spent 70 plus years single. He wrote, God's general will for his human creation is marriage. We single people must not resist this truth. Marriage is the norm, singleness the abnorm. So it's exceptional in that way, and it's exceptional in the, also in the sense that it's a good thing, a very good thing. The gospel brings dignity to singleness, valuing them equally with those who are married. You think about New Testament. Who's in the single corner? You have John the Baptist. Although wearing camel's hair and eating wild locusts probably had something to do with that. But, okay, him aside, you got Jesus. Think about this. Jesus, the most full, complete human person that ever lived, not married. Living out your manhood or your womanhood, for that matter, is not dependent on marriage. Jesus was a man, the perfect man. And you see other exceptional men and women who were single. Silas, Luke, Titus, Apollos, Lydia, Phoebe, Philip's four unmarried daughters, all throughout the New Testament. So... Scripture makes clear, marriage is good, singleness is good. It is wrong, biblically, to to declare that one is better than the other. That would go against Scripture and and Christ himself. So they're both good. Second, both singleness and marriage portray the gospel. We've already seen this in Ephesians 5 when it comes to marriage. Marriage portraying Christ's sacrificial love for the church. The church is submissive to Christ. And you might think, well, I want to portray this, so I want to get married. But... There's a way that singleness also portrays the gospel in a beautiful, different, powerful way. Singleness portrays two things here I want to point out. One, singleness portrays the Christian's ultimate identity in Christ. The world would say you need a husband or you need a wife to complete you. But singleness reminds us that this is not true. That in Christ we are complete regardless of marital status. That in a very real sense, just as these scriptures describe here, the Lord is husband to his people. More satisfying and eternally satisfying than any physical spouse there's truths about the supremacy of christ that are in a sense displayed more clearly in singleness than in marriage singleness says clearly to the world christ is my satisfaction and i do have in him everything i need listen to the words of amy carmichael and her singleness there's joy joy found in nowhere else when we can look up into christ's face when he says to us am i not enough for thee mine own with a true yes lord thou art enough So singleness portrays the Christian's ultimate identity in Christ. And then on a church level, singleness portrays the Christian's eternal identification with the church. So Genesis 2.18 is still true. It's not good for man to be alone. But no man or no woman is intended to be alone in the church. Surrounded by brothers and sisters that are in a very real, eternal sense, far more precious and far more important than any other earthly relationship, even that between a husband and a wife, just like we talked about earlier. Only a relationship with Christ, with his church, is eternal. Even marriages we're going to talk about is passing away. So you think about it. In light of all of redemptive history in Scripture, in the past, Old Covenant, singleness was avoided by most. We've seen that. In the present, New Covenant, singleness is advantageous for many. I hesitate to use many here because biblically marriage is still the norm, but, but many certainly seems to be what Paul is saying. And there are many prevalent examples of singleness in the New Testament. So follow this. In the future, new creation, singleness will be applied to all. Married people will only be married for this life. 
Then for billions and billions of years, we will be single. Forever. Marriage a temporary institution, Matthew twenty-two thirty. So singleness in a very real way portrays our eternal state in Christ. So they're both good. Singleness and marriage, good. Both portraying, both, both good, both portraying the gospel, and both singleness and marriage are God, God's gifts. So when Paul talks about marriage, he says in 1 Corinthians 7, I wish that all myself, all were as I myself am, but each has its own gift from God, each of one kind and one of another. There's a lot of discussion about what Paul is saying here. It seems clear that God is saying that he gives a gift of singleness to some and a gift of marriage to others. I remember when I was in college, guys talked about the gift of singleness and every, everybody wanted to know if they had it. And most everybody talked about it like they didn't want it. It was this Christmas gift that everybody wants to return. So there's a lot of discussion about the gift of singleness. Some people think Paul is talking about a divine enabling, kind of like spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But I think that kind of understanding does pose some problems and doesn't have as strong a foundation because it leads to a subjective battle within a single's heart wondering whether or not it's God's will for them to stay single forever. So a 20 or 30 year old looks at the short term prospects of marriage not showing up and they begin to wonder, do I have the gift? They start thinking, well, I have a desire to marry and a desire to have children, but I So I don't think I have the gift. Others say, well, I'm okay right now, so maybe I've got the gift. The reality is, whether or not they feel like they've got a gift, the reality is that single is still single. Would a married person ever ask the question, do I have the gift of marriage? No, clearly, they've been given a gift in marriage, which is where Paul uses in Romans 6.23 the word gift to describe more of an objective status. And I think this is more the picture. Now, brothers that I... Love and respect would go kind of back and forth on this. Some on one side, some on the other. But it seems to me that if you are single at the moment, then God has given you a gift in your singleness. And if you are married in the moment, then God has given you a gift in your marriage. And so to to thank God for his gift and to maximize that gift. The other danger here is in this picture of some mysterious gift of singleness that few people want is this two-tiered picture of singleness. So you've got some people who are single and who think they have the gift or are okay with that. You've got other people who are single but don't really want the gift. I think John Stott sheds light on this when he says, I have no doubt that there are some people who believe God has called them to be celibate and to commit themselves to celibacy for the rest of their, celibacy for the rest of their lives. Personally, I have real hesitations about the wisdom of that. Because I'm not convinced that people know, say in their early 20s, that God has called them to that. I personally believe more in the second alternative. The people discover God's call gradually. And as the years begin pass, begin to think that God is probably calling them not to marry. And the whole point of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is Paul saying, be content, be satisfied with whatever gift God has given you. This contentment involves deep trust in the sovereignty of God. He says the same thing in Verse 20, verse 24, and verse 27. Over and over and over again. Remain in the condition to which he is called. Remain in God. Don't miss it. The primary issue in 1 Corinthians 7 is not whether you're married or single. It's whether you're trusting in where God has you. And that's it. Instead of a frenzy of people asking, should we get married? Should we divorce? Should we remarry? Paul says, stop. And he says, trust. God has you where you are for the time being, and it's a gift that you are where you are right now. So trust in me. Listen to Margaret Clarkson, a missionary, single missionary in her 60s. 
She said, through no fault or choice of my own, I am unable to express my sexuality and the beauty and intimacy of Christian marriage as God intended when he created me a sexual being in his own image. To seek to do this outside of marriage is by the clear teaching of scripture to sin against God and against my own nature. As a committed Christian, then I have no alternative but to live a life of voluntary celibacy. I must be chased not only in body, but in mind and spirit as well. Since I'm now in my 60s, I think my experience of what this means is valid. I want to go on record as having proved that for those who are committed to do God's will, his commands, it's a great liner, his enablings. My whole being cries out continually for something I may not have. My whole life must be lived in the context of this never-ceasing tension. My professional life, my social life, my personal life, my Christian life, all are subject to its constant and powerful pull. As a Christian, I have no choice but to obey God, cost what it may. I must trust him to make it possible for me to honor him in my singleness. That this is possible. A mighty cloud of witnesses will join me to attest. Multitudes of single Christians in every age and circumstance have proved God's sufficiency in this matter. He has promised to meet our needs and he honors his words. If we seek fulfillment in him, we shall find it. It may not be easy, but whoever said the Christian life was easy. The badge of Christ's discipleship was a cross. Why must I live my life alone? I do not know. But Jesus Christ has ordered my life. I believe in the sovereignty of God, and I accept my singleness from his hand. He could have ordered my life otherwise, but he has not chosen to do so. As his child, I must trust his love and wisdom. Trust in him. And not only trust in God, but contentment is deep enjoyment of the grace of God. That's what this word gift means. You don't need to worry or fear. Do I have it for how long? This is the beauty of contentment. Philippians 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. God gives gifts and singleness and marriage. Trust them and enjoy them as measures of His grace. Alright, final foundation here. Fourth foundation. Both singleness and marriage are for God's glory. So both, both present unique opportunities to glorify God. Which means singleness has a purpose. We must be careful not to waste. So the challenge for all of us, whether single or married, is to make a success of the single life of single, to make a success of the married life of married, both for the glory of God. So with those foundations, here's four reasons to delight in singleness based on 1 Corinthians 7. One, delight in singleness because of the times we're in. Paul says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. We don't know exactly what he's referring to there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but we do know that persecution was rampant in the first century. It was not easy to be a Christian. Torture of Christians was commonplace. Trials, suffering along the way, perversion, sexual perversion in Corinth was great. And so to Christians wondering what to do, Paul actually encourages them to remain single. And he says, and this is really the focal point of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, we are looking forward to an eternal hope. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Keep things in perspective, Paul says. Even a marriage that lasts 50 years in this life is passing away. And there's coming a day very soon. Remember, your life is a mist. There's coming a day when you will be at the wedding feast of the Lamb and you will be his bride. And even if you don't marry on this side of heaven, that is not the ultimate goal. Jesus says marriage, only a shadow of what's to come. So we're working to advance a kingdom. So which leads to the second reason to delight in singleness. Delight in singleness because the mission we're on. What's the urgency? Well, in light of persecution, perversion, focus is necessary. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 19 to be eunuchs for the kingdom. Yes, marriage is good, but singleness is good for other reasons. We're living for an eternal heritage. We saw in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. We see in the New Testament, make disciples of all nations. That's how the kingdom of God expands. So may this be our all-consuming desire and passion. As married couples, yes, and as singles, yes. And particularly as singles follow in the footsteps of Paul and Lydia in the New Testament. Thomas Aquinas, Joan of Arc, Thomas Kempis, Francis Asbury, Amy Carmichael, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, John Stott, even C.S. Lewis as a bachelor for most of his life until he married at age 57. 
Rena Taylor, a single missionary in Kenya, wrote, Being single has meant that I am free to take risks that I might not take were I a mother of a family dependent on me. Being single has given me freedom to move around the world without having to pack up a household first. And this freedom has brought to me moments that I would not trade for anything else this side of eternity. Similar quote from Trevor Douglas, serving a single missionary in the Philippines. God knows what he's doing in each of our lives. He knows what he's doing. And he has designed our lives for his glory. And we can trust him in that. Third reason we delight in singleness is because we want to be undistracted in our affections, which is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 32-35. He's saying to single men and women, there's no distraction when it comes to your affections. Take advantage of that. Take advantage of that. Now, I want to be, I want to be careful with what we're about to dive into, but this is, this is just so important. Not just in 1 Corinthians 7, but all over Scripture. Paul encourages singles, and this is right before this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and married people as well. Particularly in light of sexual desire. We guard against unholy sexual desires. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee. Flee. And so in a world where singles are encouraged at every level. To in thought, indeed, engage in sexual desire. The Bible says flee, 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 flee. And, and do not buy the lie that sexual expression is necessary for ultimate fulfillment in life. Come back to Christ. Perfect. Total fulfillment. Single. As well as others in the New Testament. So guard against. Guard against unholy sexual desires and guard against unholy selfish desires. Meaning, in light of the fact that you are not distracted by a spouse, in a sense, your affection is not distracted, make sure that you do not transfer that over in unhealthy ways. Stott said this, Apart from sexual temptation, the greatest danger, which I think we face as singles, is self-centeredness. We may live alone and have total freedom to plan our own schedule with nobody else to modify it or even give us advice. If we're not careful, we may find the whole world revolving around ourselves. John Piper said, Today, singleness is cherished by many because it brings maximum freedom for self-realization. You pull your own strings. No one cramps your style. But Paul cherished his singleness because it put him utterly at the disposal of the Lord Jesus. The contemporary mood promotes singleness but not chastity because it frees from slavery. Paul promotes singleness and chastity because it frees for slavery, namely slavery to Christ. Undistracted affections for Christ, which leads to the final reason to delight in singleness, because we want to be undivided in our devotion. Undivided devotion to the Lord, 1 Corinthians 7, 35. John Stott said, single people experience the great joy of being able to devote themselves with, a con- with concentration, without distraction, to the work of the Lord. So as we guard against unholy sin, uh, selfish and sexual desires, we give ourselves to a holy, holy to a single desire to use God's great gift for God's great glory among the nations. Elizabeth Elliot, my most earnest of all pleas to singles is abandonment of the self, surrender to Christ of all unfulfilled longings, an unequivocal willingness to receive whatever God assigns, and a determination to practice the sacrificial principle of Isaiah 58. Life becomes not only far simpler, but surprisingly joyful and free. I put Isaiah 58 there. The gospel and singleness. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.